evening I'd like to reflect a little bit upon the way in which our intentions in life really have an impact upon the kind of life we experience and how our intentions in each moment really have a major effect on the way in which we have the capacity to deepen in understanding in each moment. Now, sometimes intention, in the Buddhist tradition anyway, is translated as, uh, wise intention is translated as wise thought. But actually intention is much more than just thought. Intention is much more about attitude, motivation, the way, the spirit in which we approach our lives, approach other people, approach ourselves. It is also, I think, helpful to acknowledge that intention is actually the beginning of every process that we do engage in. Our words, before we speak a word, that that word that we speak is rooted in feelings, in attitude, and in intention. Before we act, before we make choices, all of this is really informed by the kind of intentions that we have, consciously or unconsciously. I think a lot of what meditation practice really helps to do is actually really helps us to see our intentions and our attitudes and our approaches in a very conscious way, also enabling us then to live a conscious life rather than an accidental life. Because often when our own intentions are unconscious, and our words or our actions or our choices come from a place within ourselves that feels unconscious, then we do very often have the experience of our life being somewhat made up of random moments or sometimes just an accident. Sometimes the way that we experience that accidental life is more in the form of life happens to me. Things happen to me. We end up in places in ourselves or in, you know, emotionally, psychologically. We can end up in places in ourselves very far from where we want to be. And that kind of question arises, how did I end up here? Or sometimes we find ourselves speaking words or interacting with other people in ways which is sometimes really very contrary to what we feel on a deeper level that we value or honor. And again, sometimes those questions arise like, where did that come from? You know, where did it appear from? So being conscious of intention is truly a means of being a conscious participant in each moment. And on another level, being a very conscious participant 
in the way in which our world is actually created or arises on a moment-to-moment level. In the (coughs) Buddhist tradition, the story of the Buddha's enlightenment is one of the most profound and inspiring stories that gets repeated over and over again. It's said that when the Buddha, when Siddhartha sat under the Bodhi tree on the eve of his enlightenment, he sat with an unshakable resolve to be present and to be still until he awakened to what was true, until he understood what it meant to be free. And in that course of, in the course of the, that evening of sitting under the Bodhi tree, the way the story goes is that Mara, or the forces of delusion, assaulted Siddhartha with every range of temptation in order to turn him away or to divert him from this sense of clear intention about why he was there. So Mara appeared in the the forms of lust, in the forms of enticement towards greed. Mara appeared in the forms of trying to provoke anger or hatred and trying to provoke doubt. You know, one of the last appearances of Mara was in the form of doubt when Mara appeared and questioned Siddhartha's right to be sitting under the Bodhi tree or even the right to entertain the question that he could be enlightened. And in another way, Mara was saying, you know, who do you think you are? The response of Siddhartha, as the story goes, was not to become agitated or fearful, not to throw up his hands in despair and, you know, run away, not to resist, but simply to say to Mara, I know you. I know you for what you are. And to receive the words and the actions and the assaults of Mara with an open and wholehearted clarity of seeing. And of course, you know, most Buddhist stories have a really happy ending, and this intention to open and to receive apparently dissolved the power of Mara, and the poisonous arrows of Mara were transformed into flowers as they met this unshakable resolve and commitment. Now, this story of Siddhartha's awakening, truly it is a story of commitment and of vision. And it's a story of profound and clear intention. And it is really the presence of those qualities of commitment, of vision, of clear intention that really makes the story of Siddhartha's awakening into a very timeless story a story of inspiration, I think, that many of us actually draw upon. But this story of Siddhartha's awakening is really not that personal. It's also very much an archetypal story. It's a a universal story, not just found in the Buddhist tradition, but really found in an archetypal way in all traditions in all stories of pilgrimage. 
It's a story that appears in every recounting of any kind of sacred journey or vision quest. This story of Siddhartha's awakening, we could imagine, would be a very different story if it really didn't have as its theme this quality of unshakability and vision and clear intention. It would be a very different story if we listened to some story of Siddhartha's awakening where he was kind of, you know, wandering lost in the jungles and he accidentally came up across a Bodhi tree, you know, felt kind of tired, decided to rest for a while and hang out there as long as it wasn't too hot and as long as the mosquitoes didn't bite him or, you know, maybe took a picnic or you know, said, I'll sit as long as my knees don't hurt, you know, and if too much disturbs me, I'm going to retire back to the palace and party. Well, if that was the story we listened to, really the entire Buddhist tradition would be rewritten. And our experience of retreats would be very different. We would have beds in the meditation room and waiter service, you know, and, you know, occasional movies and people around to give massage. Sounds good, doesn't it? You know, we, I'd say, I'd love to do a retreat like that. But what would happen for us on that retreat? Yes, we would know more about desire, we would know more about avoidance, we would probably know more about comforting ourselves. We may not really learn anything about being awake. And when we come to a retreat, or when we come to really any meditation center in any tradition, we're actually encouraged to look upon this time as entering into a sacred space. It's one in which we all make our own pilgrimage in every moment, every time we sit, every time we walk. We actually all undertake our own pilgrimage. We undertake our own journey just as Siddhartha undertook his journey. And that is not in any way to imply that our experience when we sit or walk or when we're here should be a replica or a copy of Siddhartha's journey, because it won't be. Because each one of us comes into this time with our own stories, our own histories, our own sense of possibility, our own sense of aspiration that are somewhat unique to us. And yet there are parallel themes within that variety of uniqueness that exists within this room. There are some parallel themes between all of us between all of those people who have done exactly the same thing before us and probably some parallel themes that we will share with all those generations of people 
who will also do exactly the same thing after us. We don't end up here by accident. Most of us are brought to this particular way of experience or this particular point in our lives because we have been able to consciously acknowledge and embrace a very heartfelt longing or intuitive longing for the end of suffering and the end of conflict and separation. Most of us have come here because we've been able to consciously embrace an intuitive longing for peace, for understanding, for freedom, to not live an accidental life, but much more a longing to live a conscious life where we can be conscious not only of our choices and actions, but also willing to embrace their consequences. Most of us come here because we have acknowledged that we are, in many ways, on moment-to-moment level, parents, mothers and fathers of our own happiness and unhappiness. That we are, in many ways, very much a participant, whether we acknowledge it or not, of creating the kind of world we experience. And that acknowledgement does have a deeper implication. It also means that to be a participant means also the possibility of being a participant in transformation, in letting go through wisdom and compassion of the causes of sorrow and suffering, and nurturing through wisdom and compassion the qualities of heart and mind that lead to freedom and to well-being. Now, in Siddhartha's story, as it's told, Siddhartha, in the course of one evening, was assailed and assaulted by all of the forces of Mara in all of these different guises of greed and anger and delusion and lust and doubt and fear. And all of those forces were dissolved by the clarity of his intention and commitment and vision in the course of one night. This is obviously something of an ideal world. Most of us do discover that our own particular forces of delusion or abstraction or obscuration tend to last a little longer than one night. But they are not so really so different. They're not really so different. In the Buddhist tradition, many of these powerful mental states that we really get a glimpse of on retreat, it's just a very brief glimpse of how these very same forces and mental states really impact on our lives over and over. They're not so different. They're not so different. You know, is anyone here exempt from craving? Is anyone here exempt from aversion? Is anyone here never experienced doubt? Is anyone here never experienced 
either agitation or anxiety or dullness or indifference. Of course not. We share in these experiences. They are very human experiences. In the Buddhist tradition, they're called hindrances because they cloud our vision and because they lead us to feel confused and lost. And they make repeat visits, don't they? They make repeat visits. We become very familiar with them. They return over and over again in different forms. And I do feel we come to understand in our lives that these return visitors, that they're not dissolved by willpower or resistance or agitation. But really they are dissolved on the moment-to-moment level. Really very often by the power of our own clear intention, understanding and vision. That we're not caught. That we're not caught. And really wise intention in our lives is a quality of heart and mind and a quality of understanding that rescues us from being lost. Now, in the Zen and Mahayana traditions, you've probably all read or listened to the endless stories where people are really asked to refine and clarify their own sense of motivation and intention. You know, you've probably all heard those stories of people who are asked, you know, who go to a teacher and they're asked to kind of you know, refused entry to the monastery or they're asked to go clean the kitchen, you know, for three decades before they're ever taught to meditate. Not as, you know, and those stories are not intended to kind of illustrate a punitive nature in Zen or Mahayana traditions. But they are used as a teaching to really appreciate the, the value of reflecting upon our own motivation for practicing. Our own intentions every time we sit, every time we walk. When I was first in- introduced into meditation practice in the Mahayana tradition, as a very young, somewhat naive, and also seems to come with the package, somewhat arrogant Westerner, um, I went to a teacher and, of course, immediately expected that, you know, that the doors would be thrown open, you know, and I would be shown the prize cushion in the room, etc. And instead, my experience was that my teacher told me more or less to get lost and continue to communicate that message over a period of several weeks um, every time I went and asked to be taught how to meditate. We told no. And then after a time, um, my, one day I went again, make a beating the path to his door, and um, he gave me a box of noodles, which apparently was very significant, and meant that I was being accepted as a student, which of course somebody had to explain to me, because I never figured that one out, you know, how noodles was kind of an initiation ceremony. Anyway, of course, I didn't learn anything at all from this period of waiting because no sooner had I received the box of noodles than, you know, the first time I showed up for instruction, I presented this menu of what I wanted to learn about, you know. And of course, being a young, naive, somewhat arrogant Westerner, 
I said, you know, really I'm here because I'm interested in Tantra. You know, and my teacher looked at me as if I was some sort of loony, you know. <laughs> at that time, I hadn't even really known many Westerners, so this was a good taste of what he was going to get much more of, you know. That, oh, yeah, I'd like to learn Tantra, you know, some casual, you know, throw out. You know, he looked at me and proceeded to send me off to do many months' reflection on, on karma and compassion and hell realms and death and impermanence. Never was actually taught how to meditate, actually, for really many, many months after initially being accepted. There is often a kind of teaching in this, this, this emphasis that is given to clear intention as being a forerunner of the whole of the meditative path. Now, our experience in a retreat here, of course, is very different. You know, nobody has to go through these elaborate kind of initiation ceremonies to come on retreat at Gaia House. You know, you sign up and you come. But still, it doesn't in any way negate the need for each one of us to take that, that exploration upon ourselves inwardly of why we do this. What are we here for? And a retreat is really, in many ways, a time of reflection. Not a time of thinking, but a time of reflection when we can actually stop in our lives, when we can return home to really a very profound life of simplicity while we're here where we can let go of our entanglements with the world and all of the commitments that we have in our lives for this very brief period of time. And why do we do that? <coughs> you know, why do we not show movies here? Why do we not offer entertainment? Because it is a special time. This time of simplicity is a time also of dedication, of caring, for one moment at a time. A time, a very precious time in our lives where we can really devote ourselves just to exploring what it means to be awake, to be present in ourselves and to be present in this moment. Now this intention to be awake is actually what makes, makes this time into a sacred time and space. You know, there's nothing intrinsically sacred about sitting on a cushion or being in a retreat center or hanging around Buddha statues. You know, all moments and all times and all experiences in our life have the possibility of being sacred times, really by the kind of intention that we bring to them. Now, many times when we come on a retreat, we have already engaged in some of those reflections. And sometimes we come to a retreat with sometimes some quite generalized intentions about what meditation practice, what place it might have in our lives. Sometimes our generalized intentions are around, you know, finding solutions to difficulties in our lives and in ourselves. Maybe our intentions around having a certain kind of experience or 
looking for a way to heal something that feels very wounded in ourselves. And it's good. It's good because those intentions actually get us here. They're great. We need them. They actually get us here. When we are here, there's a different level of intention we are asked to discover. And that is not so much a generalized intention, but really the power of applied intention that is alive and visible and conscious on a moment-to-moment level. Now, I'll give you an example of that. I mean, you have probably discovered by this point in the day that there are really a whole lot of different ways of sitting on a cushion or of undertaking a walking meditation. And there are no psychic spies here. So the reality is that absolutely nobody but yourself knows what you're doing when you sit on a cushion. I haven't got a clue what you're doing. And that's kind of very liberating news, isn't it? I mean, you know, nobody actually knows what you're doing. Just like you don't know what I'm doing when I sit on a cushion. You really don't have any idea. I mean, we can have all kinds of thoughts about it or all kinds of speculation. But in reality, we don't know. And we have discovered, you know, that there's a lot of different things we can be doing. I mean, we can have the appearance of, of course, being an absolutely superb yogi, you know? Right posture, right shawl, you know, right shoes, you know, right cushion, you know, we've got all the right equipment. And inwardly, what, what might be going on? Well, you know, we could be rehashing some, some really aggressive experience we've had with somebody. We could be fantasizing wonderfully. You know, we could be planning a dinner party menu. It's a lot. Of, or we could be present. We could be really attentive. The truth is nobody knows but you. Nobody is actually involved in creating the kind of world you are experiencing in that moment, except you yourself. There's both an incredible freedom in that, and also really a profound invitation to question and to investigate and to deepen in understanding. Now, sometimes that that invitation to question actually can feel like a burden. You know, sometimes it feels like it's just easier to space out. You know, who wants to go through those heart-wrenching, life, you know, life-challenging questions of what am I doing here? What does it mean to be present? Well, nobody says you have to. But also look at your choices. Look at the choices. I mean, even the most exciting fantasies, after a while, we tire of them. Even the most enticing images, after a while, no longer excite us. Even the most seemingly attractive avenues of disconnection, after a while, there's a little voice speaks to us inwardly and says, boy, you know, I'm really disconnected in this moment. So I think sometimes we, we've made those journeys many times. And then perhaps we come to a point when we ask ourselves, well, really, what do I value? What do I treasure? What do I hold to be dear in this moment? And appreciate the freedom 
that is offered through cultivating clear intention and vision. Now, all of us are aware that this, this practice of sitting and walking is an introduction to a territory we're not always so intimate with, and that is the territory of our inner world, and the territory of all those forces that creates and shapes that inner world. And in that introduction to that territory, it's not always an easy path. We meet our shadows, we meet our demons, we meet the forces of heart and mind that sometimes are really difficult to be with. And those are the moments that really ask us to really be clear about our intention. Because it's very easy in our lives to wander on and on in familiar territory, easy to become lost in our stories about past and present and future. It's easy to push things away or to be pulled by something else, by one mental state or like or dislike or another. There's something incredibly challenging about being asked to be still, to be present, to be awake and to embrace each moment with the willingness to learn, the willingness to listen. And this is really where clear intention is kind of like a guiding light in the murkiness of confusion. Um, many years ago, when I first went to India and was doing the, the guru trail, um, one of the gurus who was alive at that time was a guru called Pundi Swami, who was a very famous guru in South India, who started being a guru, apparently at some point was dug up out of a riverbank by an unsuspecting farmer discovered him to be alive, reckoned that anybody who could be alive after being buried in a riverbank was pretty special, and immediately became sort of a miraculous person that many people went to visit, actually at his own bus stop in South India called Pundiswami Bus Stop. And you could get a bus, like from Madras, to Pundiswami Bus Stop, which was really neat, you know, it's like the sky at his own bus stop. But the person himself actually was a very simple man, and what actually seemed to make him more simple is he never talked, he never said anything. And, you know, after all these followers had gathered around him, they, they created this very simple trolley for him to sit on. It was really a trolley with wheels and everything. Only it had a curtain around it that occasionally would get closed. And all day long, people would come from all over India to have darshan, to have meeting with Pundiswami. I might mention that he sat on that trolley for 25 years, which, you know, if you find one day pretty challenging here, you know, you might consider actually it does take something pretty special to sit in a trolley for 25 years. You know, I mean, it's not just imagination, right? So people would go, and some people would go, and they, uh, he didn't speak, but he would grunt when you went for darshan. And some people would come away with these amazing stories about how, you know, he'd spoken to, to them in their native language of Swedish and answered this question they'd been trying to answer their whole lives. And other people would go and talk about this transformation or this healing. And other people would go and they'd come away saying, oh, you know, this guy's just some sort of catatonic fake, you know, like he's, you know, he's nowhere. And it was very clear that 
how people's experience was actually really shaped by what they brought to it. Now, I think in the end, it really didn't, really didn't actually matter whether Pundiswami was a fake or a saint. My sense was that was really important was that with, for people who came to that moment or that meeting with a, a real sense of openness and a willingness to learn, they actually learned. They were touched very powerfully and touched very deeply. But in a way, what was really transforming or the transformative quality, it seemed, for them was actually this incredible, wholehearted, profound willingness to be touched to be touched. And that was like the miracle. That was the miracle. Now that profound commitment and openness to being touched is the kind of intention we're asked to approach meditation with. The eagerness and the willingness, that sense of wonder, open-heartedness, that it is possible to bring to our cushion every time we sit and every time we walk. It is truly an illuminating and transforming <coughs> quality. It allows us to be surprised. You know, this is, I think, one of the wonderful parts that we learn in meditation, is that we learn how to be surprised. You know, no matter how many images we have of who we are, or how many images we have of another person, of who they are, or how many static images or perceptions we have of life, you know, that tree is like that and that bush is like that. If we really have that capacity to listen and to be surprised, we are always touched in new ways by everything that we meet. And my sense is that our capacity to really grow and deepen as a human being is really linked to our capacity to be surprised. That this is the most wondrous or the most miraculous quality. And it does ask of us, what is asked of us, is that we bring the energy and the commitment to listening, to listening, to being so fully present. The Buddha spoke a great deal about this quality of wise and clear intention. And the way that he phrased it was in terms of what leads to freedom and what leads away from freedom, what leads to happiness and what leads away from happiness. And he said almost, there is, you know, if you phrase it in that way, he said that there are these intentions that arise in our hearts and minds of craving and grasping, of finding and holding on to the pleasant sensation or the pleasant experience or the pleasant sound. There's the intention that can arise in our hearts and minds towards aversion, closing down resistance, and that there's the intention that can arise in, in our hearts and minds towards harshness or cruelty. And he said that it becomes clear to us that these intentions, these attitudes, these motivations, actually lead to suffering for ourselves and others. That they obstruct wisdom. 
that they lead to conflict and division and that they lead away from freedom. And he said, in that way of phrasing it, he said, there's another quality of intention, another approach to life and approach to ourselves, another attitude or spirit of being that arises in our hearts and minds, which, which are not ideals, not something to idealize, but ways of cultivating an approach to life that can be very real and very embodied and applied in each moment. And that they are the intentions towards letting go or letting be, the intention of renunciation, the intention towards loving kindness, towards friendliness, acceptance, and the intention towards compassion and the embracing of suffering. He said it becomes very clear that these intentions, these attitudes, these approaches are qualities of heart and mind that lead towards well-being and happiness of ourselves and others. That they are attitudes or approaches to life that really nourish wisdom and understanding, that bring closeness and intimacy, and that they lead towards freedom. There are a whole lot of intentions that he didn't mention, you know, about fixing things, dwelling things, being perfect, getting rid of things, avoiding. None of those were mentioned. Renunciation, loving kindness, compassion. Pretty simple guidelines, pretty simple guiding lights, and yet really powerful in our world. It becomes very noticeable for us that what we pay attention to shapes and flavors the kind of world that we experience. That what we actually give attention to shapes and flavors the kind of inner world we experience. That wise, atten- wise intention creates wise attention and that unwise intention creates unwise attention. Very simple, well, there's one story, you know, about a a farmer who lost his axe and searched for it everywhere, couldn't find it. And later on that day, he saw a neighboring child playing near his shed. Suddenly he looked at this child, in the light, of course, of losing his axe. And suddenly as he looked at this child, he just looked like a pretty shifty kid. You know, he seemed to move like a thief, seemed to act like a thief. In fact, he probably was a thief. And then, of course, the farmer found his axe, looked again at the child, and he looked just like any other child. That we experience that kind of shift in perception all the time in our own world. And here, I mean, suppose you have somebody sitting beside you, you know, that you've decided that you feel some affection for, you care about. And then one day, they, one time they come into a sitting and, and you notice that they seem to be uncomfortable or distressed, you know. Maybe they're squirming around. You feel affection for them. So how do you respond to their squirming around, their distress? You feel very concerned about them, you know. You'd maybe like to go get them a hot water bottle, you know, or offer them some tiger balm, you know. You're worried about them. You care about them. I suppose somebody sits on the other side of you that, you know, you haven't liked really from the moment the retreat started. You know, they're definitely an unpleasant character in your view. They're doing exactly the same shifting around, squirming, they seem to be exhibiting signs of discomfort. Do you feel concerned? 
No, most of you say, you're schmuck, why don't you sit still, you know? You're interrupting my meditation, you know? I'll never get anywhere as long as you're doing this. Same experience. Different intentions, different attitudes, different ways of holding that experience. Doesn't this happen just all of the time in our lives? Now, sometimes it seems like we really don't have much choice about these responses. Sometimes it feels very choiceless. We don't necessarily want to be aversive towards that person. We don't want to be irritated with them. We don't necessarily really want to be irritated truly with anybody in our lives. I mean, most of us are pretty aware that it's a fairly unpleasant mind state to be lost in intolerance or annoyance or impatience or irritation. Most of us don't enjoy it. Yet it happens. And sometimes it feels like we don't see, like there's no choice, you know, like, and, and sometimes we get a little resigned about that. You know, we think, oh, it's just my conditioning, or I come from a long lineage of impatient people, you know, or a long, you know, my ancestors were intolerant, you know, my ancestors were aversive, so that's how I am too. You know, we can get a little kind of flat about it all. Now, in meditation practice, actually, we really begin to discern there's actually no such thing as this level of choicelessness. This is actually a slight delusion of the mind. We learn, instead of being blindly or impulsively pushed or pulled by the weight of our conditioning, we learn to be still and to attend we learn to pause. Instead of being compelled to react in a particular way rooted in a long history, we really see what difference it makes to bring the light of attention to those moments. To hold them without judging, without resistance, without blame, but with a question what is actually happening here. As we learn to do this with great skillfulness, what begins to open up for us is a sense of possibility and choice. We don't feel lost in choicelessness anymore. We may see in those moments when there's aversion or when there's intolerance, this is the time to bring a greater sense of loving-kindness. We may see in those moments when we feel really lost and really entangled in some story or drama, this is the time to let go. We may see in those moments when we feel very, very harsh towards someone else, to open to that suffering, to embrace that pain, to know this is a time for compassion. What do we experience? What do we learn every time we do that? Well, we're in a process of learning. We're in the process of learning what leads to happiness, what leads to well-being, what leads to oneness, what leads towards freedom. So we might say that this is all an experiment in intention. We might say this is all a, a, a grand experiment in exploring wise intention and opening up those doorways of choice and possibility which actually, as we discover what is true, 
as we discover really what leads to happiness, what leads to the end of suffering, what leads to closeness and intimacy, it stops being a question of choice anymore. It becomes a different kind of choicelessness. The choicelessness of really knowing so deeply what leads to freedom, what leads to suffering, that we no longer in any way, consciously or unconsciously, make our home in that which leads to suffering. But that intuitively we make our home in that approach, that attitude, those intentions that truly lead to freedom. Now this is an area of our practice, an area of forming and shaping our world that I would really encourage and invite you to give some attention to over the days of this retreat. When we find ourselves struggling or dwelling or resisting, to pause for a moment, not judge, not blame, but to entertain that exploration, to explore that territory. What really is our intention here? What are we dedicated to in this moment? To discover the ways in which this really plays a part in shaping both our inner world, our outer world. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.